With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Pella Neuroth-Taylor, live from Sweden, on today's News Talk TNT. Hi, this is uh, Pella Neuroth-Taylor on TNT Radio, and uh, we can see that the Assange case is going on in London, and TNT have been following that closely. Um, Assange's belief, of course, was that through information, uh, we would have fewer wars. Um, I don't know if that's true. I hope so. Um, I think that Certainly what we've got now is um, unaccountability between the intelligence agencies, between the military and uh, the political leadership in Western Europe and America. So where the, they have to face down uh, domestic constituencies when they talk about domestic issues and face parliament and so on. But um, let's take Britain, for, for example, where I think uh, the deep state is very powerful and very secretive. Uh, when uh, prime ministers can be engaged in foreign affairs, it's far less constrained by parliamentary opinion, and they can always claim various prerogatives and uh, piled on layers of confidentiality and secrecy and so on. And of course, it's tempting because you can win big battles and uh, big political victories that will end you up in the history books. Rather than struggling uh, over small issues like uh, banning on vaping for young people and so on, which uh, exercises the the domestic politics scene. And for a narcissist, let's say like Boris Johnson, struggling with uh, a young wife and her baby and uh, a need for grandiosity and grand gestures to to mirror his uh, hero, Winston Churchill's achievements, of course, uh, foreign policy even though you're not that well informed about the consequences, is an attractive deal. Anyway, that was Assange's uh, hope, I think, and uh, uh, we're never more reminded of it than today when the the case is up before the courts in London. Um, Interestingly, today also sees a very big headline in The Guardian, which was the most hawkish on Russia and once a supporter and then an enemy of Julian Assange. Very interesting that it appears in The Guardian because it was uh, the voice of the liberals and believed by British and global liberals. And this poll says that um, uh, only one in 10 Europeans believes that uh, Ukraine is going to win this conflict. And it's uh, significant also because it was commissioned by the European Council of Foreign Relations, which is like The Guardian, another hawkish body, a think tank that is very closely aligned to the what you could call the Atlantic consensus, which means very pro-NATO and and believes in the, in the sort of Western uh, liberal mission of sort of dominating the world through what they call uh, the uh, the rules-based international order. So that this appears on the front page of The Guardian and they're bigging it up, I think says something as much as the poll itself. Now, what the poll also says is that um, by, a, by an estimate of about two to one of those who express an opinion, 60%, uh, 70% for and 30% against, think that the Ukrainian conflict, uh, Ukraine should be pushed towards making a peace deal with Russia. And only about uh, half that figure, about 30% of Europeans think that Ukraine should be supplied with more weapons with the aim of uh, trying to uh, defeat Russia or create a a better situation for a victory on the battlefield, even though at the same time, they don't think it's possible. Uh, Even fewer think it's possible that uh, Ukraine will prevail. So that's a very powerful voice from the European public that they want peace and negotiations and a diplomatic solution to this war. Now, that of course is at odds with the Atlantic elites who uh, provide our government uh, leaderships, uh, including you know, formerly Boris Johnson, but also, also the people who 
crowd around in their European Council meetings, rushing around and then coming up with frenetically aggressive, hawkish comments about how Russia needs to be defeated. These are these nobodies, you know, who uh, who rule us and who have the European Commission behind them, an unelected body telling us that we've got to fight to the end, uh, sending our sons to a war with Russia, whereas they continue to have their comfortable Brussels lunches or whatever. Anyway, um, I think that this is a message for them too, vested as they are in continuing this war uh, for uh, their own uh, personal career ambitions. They, they don't want to let it go because it marks a defeat for them, of course, because they've been pushing war since uh, February 2022. Now, of course, there's a, there's a divide between the countries. In this poll, we've got um, the most pacific, uh, include uh, most of the Southern Europeans, to some extent Germany, and Hungary, of course, uh, and the most uh, hawkish, uh, UK is not included in this EU-only poll, Sweden and Poland. Poland doesn't surprise me because it's a, it's a militarist society that still dreams of uh, its old East European empire, which included the territory of Ukraine. Sweden, of course, uh, ought to surprise me, and it surprises me less now than that, that I've lived here for a bit. Formerly neutral country, now joining NATO, but with a very strong tech sector, which thinks that it's going to be part of... Um, uh, the long-term NATO project to defeat the powers of uh, tyranny in the world, where Sweden will be a leading country in surveillance technology, monitoring, uh, provide a large military base for the a, a long 30-year war against Russia. There are elements of that in Sweden. Also, I think maybe, maybe Sweden being such a feminist society in many respects, um, taking on Russia is for Swedish males an outlet uh, sort of being uh, pummeled all the time uh, with sort of anti-masculinity values. And the final thing I thought is also the strong uh, Protestant, uh, formerly religious nature of, nature of Sweden. Sweden was once a sort of very, um, very God-fearing country, and then it became very secular. But I think that the role of the priest who dominated Swedish public life in the 19th century so strongly has been taken over by the media, the journalists of the modern priesthood, Swedes read a lot and they read and they trust their media. And the media, of course, are as garbage as they are elsewhere in Europe. And unfortunately, Swedes believe it. So they really drank the Kool-Aid. Now, on the topic of uh, religion, we will be talking about to one of the top uh, Swedish uh, religious peace figures, um, a former archbishop, no less. But that will be after the uh, day's news analysis with our news producer, Basil Valentine, after the break. This is TNT Radio. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT Radio. This is the Pelineroth Taylor Show. Uh, Basil, our news producer, Basil Valentine. What have you got for us today, Basil, in this uh, depressing world of ours at the moment? Oh, don't, Pelle. Uh, isn't it just? It becomes more challenging by the day. Um, the hypocrisy of the United States is something I want to highlight. Israeli airstrikes across Gaza killed at least 67 Palestinians overnight. I mean, you know, was anybody aware of this even? Mm. Um, mm. Including in areas where civilians had been told to seek refuge. Wow. Doctors Without Borders said that two people were killed when a shelter housing its staff in the Gaza Strip was struck and the IDF said it recovered weapons. Um, mm. Meanwhile, the UN World Food Programme has announced it is pausing deliveries of food aid to northern Gaza. Contrast that and, of course, the veto 
by the United States at the United Nations Security Council of the latest ceasefire resolution, a truly uh, abysmal verdict, uh, backed up by Joe Biden's words that now is not the time for a ceasefire after the deaths mm -hmm. of 35,000 civilians. Quite extraordinary stuff. Uh, but this morning at the Old Bailey, uh, the lawyer representing the United States uh, seeking to extradite Julian Assange to uh, the USA uh, said that people living under authoritarian regimes disappeared after Julian Assange blended hacking with reporting, stole vast amounts of classified documents and published them on his WikiLeaks website. So uh, mm. on the one hand, the United States appears to care about the lives of people living in the Middle East, and on the other hand, uh, is quite oblivious to the ongoing slaughter in Gaza. And mm. uh, the final part of this jigsaw is that the United States was making representations to the International Court of Justice this morning about the entirely separate case relating to the occupation where it used very, very carefully selected language uh, mm. to talk about how we respectfully encourage the court to carefully calibrate its advice in the proceeding to support and facilitate final realization of peace and stability within the established UN framework set out at UN Security Council Resolutions 242 and 338. So mm. there you go. There well, you go, Pelly. That's where uh, we of are. Of course, I mean, 67 uh, dead Palestinians. I mean, if it had been in Mariupol after a, a alleged Russian bombing, it would be all over the Western press. But, I mean, unless you dig into uh, the inside pages, you won't find out about these things. And presumably they're That's all, right. of course. And these were places where they were told to have get refuge, and they didn't. I mean, Indeed. it's pretty outrageous, Indeed. isn't it? Indeed. Um, of course it is. It's unbelievably outrageous. And equally outrageous is the fact that it's ignored by corporate media. It's, oh, well, they're just Palestinians that, you know, perhaps they deserve to die. You know, it's mm. abysmal. Uh, a woman was also killed and her daughter seriously injured in a village in South Lebanon following an Israeli mm -hmm. eye strike. Uh, these people have got mm. nothing to do with anything, uh, you know. Mm. Why is and, Israel bombing South Lebanon? And presumably, I mean, there's a fear of escalation there, isn't there? Because and Hezbollah, who are the uh, power to consider in South in Lebanon, are much better armed than Hamas. So, I mean, uh, Israel is really courting a regional war there. Um, are there? And of course, the whole Arab world is in uproar over what's going on in in, in Gaza and fueling sort of this. Uh, this long-term rage against the West for having its sort of double standards and world conflict issues. Uh, do you think it's going to escalate in in uh, in, um, in southern Lebanon? Well, people are saying that that's what Netanyahu wants and that it's part of his plan to draw the United States into a wider regional war that would envelop uh, not only Hezbollah, but also Hezbollah's backer, ally, I should say, Iran. But you know the the drumbeat for war with iran is slightly less loud now than it was a couple of weeks ago but that's not to say it won't return meanwhile in the united mm. kingdom of course there's the vote in the house of commons later today uh about a ceasefire a political position that's caused tremendous embarrassment particularly to the labor party who is mm. seeing its support hemorrhage the motion mm. is being brought by the scottish national party
Um, mm-hmm. And the debate is going on in Parliament as we speak. The SNP I, I wonder MP- if... Go on. Is that something that could uh, lose Labour the election uh, if they're split over uh, over Gaza? I hope so. Um, you know, unfortunately, there isn't a viable third force to, you know, take up the slack to enter the vacuum and present mm. some genuinely moral politics. You know, both mm. the Labour Party and Conservative Party are drenched in Palestinian blood, if you don't mind mm. me using that graphic metaphor. Um, uh, you know, the Liberal Democrats, well, you know, nobody takes them too seriously these days. So there isn't anybody to vote for, and that's what the message coming back from the electorate is, and that's why mm. it's highly likely George George Galloway will be elected MP for Rochdale at the upcoming by-election. Labour Party, of course, are now proposing their own uh, motion, talking about a humanitarian ceasefire. This is the key Mm -hmm. word, Pelly, a humanitarian ceasefire. What the difference is between a ceasefire and a humanitarian ceasefire, I have no idea. Mm. I think the insertion of that word humanitarian is supposed to indicate that we're doing it for the sake of the civilians rather than wanting to bring the hostilities themselves to a close, if that makes oh, any sense. Well, it sounds you know, like a political verbiage to, to try and square the circle. Uh, yeah. Yes. I mean, are, are they, what about the food situation in, 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 in Gaza and the humanitarian situation? Are any trucks getting through? Um, any uh, The aid? ones that aren't being blocked by the Israeli protesters, of course. I mean, it is extraordinary to think that there are people, you know, actively engaged in physically preventing aid reaching Gaza. It's an extraordinary thing to think anybody would be motivated to do. Um, The UN World Food Programme has announced it is pausing deliveries of food aid to northern Gaza after incidents when it said convoys were unable to deliver aid as planned due to a breakdown in civil order. It said a truck was looted and the driver beaten. Well, unfortunately, mm. if people are starving to death, that is likely to happen. So the US is blocking, um, its as it's done so often before, a veto and probably hemorrhaging uh, global popularity as a result. What's next at the UN? What, what, uh, what are the signposts we should be looking for to bring this damn conflict to an end? Uh, well, the uh, US was supposed to be promoting an alternative motion to the Algerian one. I don't know if that's going to be debated today. Um, you know, yeah. heads, heads you win, tails you lose sort of thing. I, You know, it's to be hoped that a, a replacement motion for the Algerian one is put before the Security mm. Council. But if Biden says now is not the time for a ceasefire, then, then uh, you know, that's their so, position, basically. So when is the time for a ceasefire? I mean, is there an end? Has anyone sketched out an end point here? Well, I mean, are the, are you know, it, Israelis going to kill 67 people a day until until what? You <laughs> that, know? That, well, you know, that would appear to be their agenda. I mean, um, mm. you know, Netanyahu has said that Hamas must be completely obliterated, but how that is measured... Um, mm. particularly when the leadership of Hamas don't even live in Gaza, uh, mm. is anybody's guess, you know. Um, mm. He's now saying that Rafa is a hotbed of Hamas activity, but 
we've only got the Israelis' word for it, and they do mm. have a record of consistently lying. Mm. Well, there's plenty of lies to go around in our world, and it's our role to try and uh, to oppose those lies and try and tell the truth, because it's only when you have the truth and have the facts that you can make democratic decisions. Anyway, uh, Basil, thank you very much for that, and uh, we'll talk tomorrow on Assange and other news topics of the day. Thank you very much, Basil. We will. Uh, have a good day. This is uh, Pelinero's Taylor show on TNT Radio. TNT's James Freeman. Now, at the moment, um, the WHO operates in an advisory capacity globally, but all of that will change if amendments to the international health regulations go through, combined with the ratification of a new global pandemic accord. Um, it started off being called as a treaty, but they thought that would frighten everyone. Um, so they now called it a pandemic accord, but it is an international treaty. And if it goes through, it will give the WHO legal powers over all of its members. James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT. The Irish government is proposing a law known as the Hate Speech Bill that threatens free speech. This law could have dire consequences for our democracy. Next week, next month, next month, and then on to the next week. This law will have uncertain effects on artistic and musical expression. Please support us. It could stifle the activity of public campaigning on political and civil issues and also curtail speech relating to topics about religion, ethnicity, sex and gender. You could even be jailed for possessing documents, cartoons or memes on your devices, even if you never read them or intended on sharing them. Mere possession could make you a criminal under this law. Help stop this law. Visit www.freespeechireland.ie forward slash take action to bin the hate speech bill. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Welcome back to the Pelineros Taylor Show. I would like to welcome a very distinguished guest, which is a former Archbishop of Sweden, Kogi Hamar, who is uh, known for his liberal views, very active now in the debates in Sweden on moral questions and uh, written lots of books about theology. And a very, very interesting man who uh, is on this show particularly to talk about um, the death of the Swedish UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, 60 two years ago, I think it was, uh, which is a subject I've talked about before. And I'll just uh, run through, uh, I'll tell you why I think it's important. Uh, it's not an obscure figure by any means, probably the most famous figure Sweden has produced in the last hundred years. And he was the leader of the United Nations at a time when the world thought it could pull together to avoid another devastating war, having just escaped uh, World War II, uh, which ended, of course, with uh, two nuclear explosions. And uh, tens of thousands of dead there. And of course, the nuclear war fears were very prominent in the 1950s. And there was a lot of talk about whether the UN should progress to another more dominant, stronger role. Uh, people would have to bandy together. I, I hate the word world government, I know, sends uh, chills through our listeners, and rightly so. But uh, more of a contracted uh, and powerful role for the UN to prevent the uh, nuclear arms race from escalating into outright nuclear conflict. Central role was played by Dag Hammarskjöld. And he also 
was trying to bring uh, peace into the into Africa's largest country, the Congo, which was rent apart by the two by being involved by the in the Cold War, with uh, the UK supporting one part, UK and US and France supporting the southern part of Congo, which had broken free from the rest, called Katanga, and then you had the central government in the northern part of Congo, which uh, I know the British intelligence thought was run by communists, and that Hammarfjell's attempts to bring them together in a democratic States, which I think he t intended to do, um, also as a role model for, for what he's trying to do in the rest of the world in other conflict zones. He was thought to be running the communists' errands, and then he died in this mysterious crash on British territory. Anyway, uh, Archbishop Hammer, tell us a little bit why why have you engaged yourself in the Hammerfeld case, and why is Hammerfeld relevant for today's audiences? It's after after all. 62 years ago well to me it's a lifelong history because i very early i got acquainted with the markings his um, spiritual diary and uh, that affected me very much uh, and uh, because of that i was invited by the swedish government in 2005 100 years since he was born uh, to write about uh, the role of markings in in the book which the government produced all over the embassies all over the world. So I was invited by the embassy in Lusaka in 2011 to talk about uh, the markings and Hammarskjöld and so on. But then um, Susan Williams' book, Who Killed Hammarskjöld, just appeared. So when I arrived in, uh, in Zambia, everyone wanted to talk about uh, uh, Susan Williams, uh, and uh, I visited the uh, the crash site and listened to uh, to witnesses that night when um, the, the airplane was shot down. And I was so convinced that uh, this was a foul play. And the whole world had been almost convinced that it was a pilot error. And that was the strategy of the Northern Rhodesian government to mm. send that message all over the world. Mm. Uh, what were these witnesses saying then? Uh, can you recall what, what sort of, and weren't these uh, uh, black witnesses who'd been neglected by the original commissions because they were, because they were black, they were not sought to be credible witnesses by the, the white government of Rhodesia? Exactly. And the government was uh, uh, very much uh, pro-South Africa apartheid policies. Uh, it was a white regime in Salisbury and uh, they hated Hammerfeld because he wanted to uh, to uh, help the liberation of the former colonies in Africa and avoid the uh, the continued control of the Western powers uh, in the economic field. Mm. So we are the um, enemies all over. He was um, a sort of, I mean, he... Uh, and I've got a guy on later next week, I think, who says that Hammerfeld was actually a, a Western asset, or a, but uh, that he was um, that the United Nations, uh, although it seemed to be speaking for the whole world, was actually very closely allied to the United States, and um, they were talking about trying to, you know, Lumumba, who was this uh, hero of Congo, mm -hmm. he died in suspicious circumstances, and. Uh, it's generally regarded by the CIA, it have done be done by the CIA and the Belgians. And uh, Congo could have had a much better future if he'd lived. Um, my view is that Hammerfeld 
uh, felt guilty about it, but it was a kind of neglect. They didn't want to get involved and it happened under his noses. But some people think he had a more aggressive role in, in making that happen. I know it's slightly outside your topic of, of the death of Hammarskjöld itself, and we'll talk more about that. But do you think there's any case that of Hammarskjöld's uh, responsibility for Lumumba? Uh, his uh, responsibility was one of neglect. It sounds like Stefan Carlson, your next uh, interviewer. Yes, uh, I've read his book about his view in this case. Uh, Hammarskjöld felt uh, uh, ashamed after Lumumba's death because he, he uh, relied on the neutrality of United Nations in uh, the inner state conflicts and um, that made it uh, possible for Lumumba's enemies to uh, kill him. So mm. he, he felt guilty, that's very obvious, uh, but mm. he, uh, he felt that he couldn't do anyway, otherwise. Well, time. I mean, one, one thing is that I've, I've wrote a book about Hammarskjöld actually, and um, I found that, uh, I mean, I suppose there's so much literature on this that you can find the interpretations that you're looking for, that's the problem. But um, I think I definitely got the impression that Hammarskjöld was glad. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's a Swede. You know, he's not going to do these things. He's not that um, Machiavellian. But I got the impression that he wanted, he wasn't, he was unha not unhappy that Lumumba was out of the way because Lumumba was so polarizing. He made peace impossible, so that uh, if Lumumba was just in jail for a bit longer, he could get together this government of Katanga plus the Communist North like a sort of coalition, almost like a Swedish coalition government. And then Lumumba could be brought back into the system. But he, he was too polarizing in the beginning to have as a, as a politician who was active. Is that a sort of interpretation that you would agree with? Yeah, at least partly. Uh, I mean, the, uh, those, the enemies of a unified uh, Congo state, uh, they were so strong because they supported... Uh, in secrecy very much the, uh, the secession of Katanga. Uh, and that means that um, I think bo both US and you and both United States and, and Great Britain played double, so to speak. They, in one way, they wanted the secession because they had so strong links with, with the uh, white settlers in uh, Africa. Uh, and um, the United States was very much afraid that uh, the, um, the Soviet Union will get a role to play, a bigger role mm -hmm. to play in Africa. Mm -hmm. and, and so mm -hmm. um, um, on one hand, I supported the UN project to have a unified Congo. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I, I didn't do very, uh, very much to, to prevent mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the sound mm -hmm. downfall. Of we'll, we'll carry on about Hammarskjöld and his death and his importance for the world. Uh, after the break, we're just going to get into the news headlines now. This is TNT Radio, Pelinerath Taylor Show. Thank you. Big news, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Russian President Vladimir Putin has publicly rejected wild reports out of the US that he's planning on placing nuclear weapons in space. The US has blocked yet another UN resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And disgraced former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is demanding $1 million in either cash, gold or Bitcoin to sit down for an interview with Tucker Carlson. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 
365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk, this is TNT Radio. Well, welcome back to the Pelinero Taylor Show. We've got the uh, esteemed guest, the former Archbishop of Sweden, uh, Kurge Hammar, who's been very engaged in the very mysterious death of a Swedish uh, UN Secretary General in 1961. He was probably the most, the best known and best regarded uh, statesman in the world at that time. And Kennedy admired him, said he was the best statesman in history or something on the 20th century. And he, of course, he was the most famous UN Secretary General the UN ever produced. And many people at that institution still admire him today. And of course, he died in a very suspicious manner. Uh, Kogehama, what do you think actually happened that night in Andola? Do you have a candidate for who, who did it and how it happened? Yeah, I mean, to, today, I don't think it's so mysterious anymore, because we know from all the investigations and uh, listening to new witnesses and so on, that the Hammarskjöld plane was shot down. Uh, and uh, it was expected and planned. There were uh, soldiers or mercenaries on the ground when the, the, the plane hit the ground. And um, the uh, the official authorities, they proclaimed that they didn't find the plane until 15 hours the next day. So they had plenty of time to remove all the, the uh, indications that it was uh, shot down. Yeah. Uh, we don't know who um, asked this to be done. It was certainly mercenaries who uh, did it, but... Uh, was it uh, was it British or was it uh, American or was it Belgium? Uh, we don't know. There is a mm. case in UN uh, to try to find out and to uh, ask the member states to cooperate, to open their archives to see, because we, uh, we are convinced that there is uh, evidences that would clarify this this case. Mm. Yeah, I've read those reports. And uh, there's a it's a Tanzanian judge called Othman. Yes. And oh, uh, it provides very important jigsaw pieces. But of course, I think um, I think the, one of the most important findings or the claims that you have to the trouble is with these reports is that you have to sift them and read them carefully and, and find the gold nuggets. But he says that what the British and Americans are doing by failing to hand over, for instance, the in radio intercepts of the last cockpit voices, which would give us a clue, those have been uh, kept secret. Now, if they're innocent, why are they being kept secret? Um, so he thinks, yeah. he says, it's very strong words in UN terms, obstruction of justice by the Americans and the British. Is yeah. Are the British and Americans obstructing justice? Yes, yes, of course they are in the sense that that they want, they don't want to open up the archives because the behavior they used in 1961 uh, is still used uh, in these uh, secret wars between uh, East and West and, and powers all over. It's secret services um, um, instrument. They uh, they cannot say we are sorry for what we did in 1961 if they continue to do things like that today. Mm -hmm. That's my interpretation. Well, my view is that the 
British intelligence in particular been very active in Ukraine doing various operations. And certainly I think the British and on Americans blew up Nord Stream. But the Swedes are kind of true to form in a way because they don't want to talk about these things either. I mean, oh, well, that's um, true. The, the Swedish arm, the Swedish police found out they went went down to the Hammerfeld crash in 1961 and they were very critical. But the Swedish government said, hushed it up because we don't want to to be on the wrong side of the British and the Americans. And that's been the case ever since when the British and Americans are involved. The Swedish government says, hush, we don't want to talk about this. Same with the Nord Stream. And of mm. course, now Sweden is going to join uh, NATO. And of course, does Sweden really want to join an organization whose leading members kill their statesmen? You know, what? So this is very explosive information, isn't it? Yes, but the betrayal was already in 1962. Uh, as you mentioned, the, 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 the Swedish people at the, at the spot, they were very critical of the investigations made by the Rhodesians. But after a couple of months, uh, they changed their report and supported more or less uh, the idea that it was a pilot error. And, and mm. uh, so we, I, I am part of a group in, in, in Sweden, four people, we are trying to force the the um, the foreign department and the government to really open up the archives and, and explain mm. why did the Swedish position change so radically uh, from saying it, it is a, a sabotage till it was certainly a, a pilot error, abandoning the families of the fifth, this, these people, uh, for, leave them for 60 years with the guilt that their loved ones was guilty of this uh, uh, death of the, all these people. So mm. um, we, we are very upset that we cannot really get the, uh, the, the foreign office to cooperate more than they do. But of course now you are working against the wind uh, because uh, before this started in 2014, you had a social democrat government which was sympathetic to Hammarskjöld and a kind of neutralist foreign policy. But now you've got a government that is very, very invested in the alliance with Britain and America. Um, how are they? How are you possibly going to make headway against them? I mean, they don't want to embarrass their new friends in London and Washington, you know, with the new role for Sweden as a central member of NATO. Yeah, but but they can also say that this is history, and it was a social democratic government at that time that uh, tried to put mm -hmm. the evidences aside. So um, mm. depends on what kind of role you want to play. Mm. Um, so we'll, uh, we've got to wind up. I'd love to talk to you about many, many other things um, and not related to Hammarskjöld, you know, uh, but because you're very prominent in the Swedish peace movement and have made many, many, um, given us very many insights there. But maybe we'll have you on again or something. But just... Um, uh, we've only got one minute left. Uh, can you just uh, say, what, what what are you doing next? Give us uh, two or three sentences or, or four sentences on the next steps for your Hammerfell Truth Commission. Yes, uh, we try to, to get public support and support from uh, several uh, um, parties in the government to really press on the... Uh, the Foreign Office to open up the archives and allow an independent scholar to look into the, uh, the documents and see uh, how much can be revealed about the Swedish position and why it changed uh, so mm. drastically and why uh, 
the mm. families were abandoned in the way they were. Mm-hmm. And of course, in my view, thank you very much. In my view, of course, finding out in the Swedish archives might give us clues to what happened in, in London and Washington, because that's the way to find out the whole truth, looking at the local situation in the Swedish archives. So it, it does have a purpose for finding out the greater story. Okay. Anyway, mm-hmm. Archbishop Kogihama, thank you very much for a very interesting interview. Uh, we're now going into a quick break before our next guest. Uh, this is Pelineroth Taylor Show, TNT Radio. Thank you very much. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The big question is, why does the United States and why does Australia apparently have leaders that wish to commit national suicide as far as energy goes? Check out these facts. The European Union has 468 coal plants. They're building 27 more. Turkey has 56, building 93 more. South Africa has 79 coal plants, building 24 more. India, 589, building 446. Philippines, 19, they're building 60 more. South Korea, 58 coal plants, building 26 more. Japan, 90 coal plants, building 45 more. But here is the coup de grace. Here is something that makes me wonder that given Hunter Biden had dealings with a Chinese energy corporation and a fossil fuel energy corporation at that, that these people that are actually in charge of the United States are not complicit in all this phony climate war scam stuff. China has 2,363 coal plants. They're building 1,171 more and not a peep out of the United States. What about Australia? You're going to shut down your six remaining plants. All this to save the world? Let me tell you something. What's going on is who's ever in charge of Australia and the United States trying to bring down their own country at the expense of China and the rest of the world. How else can you conclude anything else? This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Most people are unaware that bad bacteria can grow quickly in food that's stored, prepped, or cooked incorrectly, and that can lead to food poisoning. To avoid bad bacteria, always make sure your hands and cooking utensils are clean. Keep raw meat and chicken away from food that won't be cooked. Run your fridge at or below 5 degrees Celsius, and use a meat thermometer to ensure your meat's being cooked to at least 75 degrees Celsius. For more tips on keeping bad bacteria at bay, visit foodsafety.asn.au. Coming to you live from Sweden, you're with Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to TNT Radio, the channel for truth and truth-telling. Uh, we're absolutely happy to welcome today's second guest, um, a financier uh, who lived in Moscow for a while with uh, French nationality, Eric Krauss, who is an expert on uh, Russia of the 2000s, and like me, has always opposed the propaganda garbage coming out of the Western media, um, which uh, we saw uh, from our previous guest um, was uh, was was uh, existent even in the 1960s. And uh, we're ca- carrying out this interview in the spirit of Julian Assange. Of course, there's a hearing in London to see whether he will be extradited for telling the truth uh, or not. And he always believed that that exposing the secrets of the deep state will make the world a more peaceful place, and we certainly need a more peaceful world now. Um, Eric, um, you were talking in our pre-interview about, um, I mean, there have been all these narratives 
for the last 20, 25 years, one after the other, about how the wicked Russians and how they assassinate and poison their opponents. And I guess um, the 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 first big story about that in that in that it came in 2006, I think, or 2005, when uh, Litvinenko was poisoned by polonium, uh, and that was a very very big story. And we all remember the shot of him lying in bed uh, in a hospital bed, dying of uh, radiation poisoning uh, as a result of this uh, Russian hit on his life. Uh, some hitman from Moscow turned up on Putin's orders to kill the man. But you lived in Moscow and you had a huge contact network and you were also very interested in current affairs and you were able to dig around. Can you tell us a little bit more about the real story there from your perspective? Well, I'd like to point out, in fact, that the fake narratives about Russia date back to the not to the 1960s, but rather to the late 17th century, the French Marquis de Couste. But we'll leave him out for you. Uh, the Lithuanian yeah, okay. story was so obviously a setup. Um, and I'll start with the end of it. Mr. Litvinenko wrote a sublimely beautiful Shakespearean last letter accusing Putin of having poisoned him. The letter was a work of literature, of great art, by a man who did not speak a word of English. Uh, at this, there were videos of him shot a few months earlier unable to order a cup of tea. So obviously this last letter was written by his P by the PR team of whom? Well, probably of Boris Berezovsky, because Mr. Litvinenko had been a spy 10 years previously, had gone to the UK, had told them everything he knew, was completely useless to the Russian state. There was no reason to kill the guy. There were a hundred people much more dangerous, much more harmful to the Russian government than Litvinenko. Uh, okay, well, I just get, get pushback there. I mean, uh, sure, he was not. So you say he wasn't useful for the for the British intelligence anymore. So this, but I mean, maybe you could just kill him anyway, just to say, well, you don't cross the Russian state just like that. So I mean, he, he assumptions about motive working, are not enough, right? He was working for Boris Berezovsky. Berezovsky was notorious at manipulating people, uh, and uh, he had his own political agenda, and Litvinenko had been very useful to him, but Litvinenko had gone rogue, and um, he was uncontrollable. He was probably involved in a smuggling ring of nuclear materials, including possibly polonium, though that's unproved. It's certainly been alleged. And... If there was anybody who had an interest in removing him, it was Mr. Berezovsky, who had, mm. and I knew the man reasonably well, who had a bad reputation. Uh, if you got on the wrong, if you got seriously on the wrong side of him, you might not last very long. Uh, yeah, the okay. Russian... Go ahead. You've got to explain who Bar Berezovsky is. You've got to assume that that's almost 20 years ago now. We've got a whole new generation yes. of people growing up. Who was Boris Berezovsky? Boris Berezovsky was one of the original oligarchs was one of the young guys who came up when the Soviet Union was falling apart and managed to get his hands on valuable assets and become billionaires by simply stealing state assets. Um, and this was Berezovsky, Hordakovsky, Potanin. Uh, you know, I mean, there, uh, uh, there were seven of them. And um, 
Some of them subsequently, when Mr. Putin came to power, he said to these guys in the famous conference, he said, what you stole, you stole it fair and square. Uh, it's yours to keep. But now you're going to have to stop playing politics. You're going to have to stop trying to control the Russian state, which they did at the time, and thus the bankruptcy and the crisis of 98. Most of them took a hit and became industrialists. A few of them thought they were stronger than uh, Vladimir Putin, that they could continue to ride roughshod on the Russian state the way they did under Yeltsin. And they ended up traveling relatively quickly to the West. Uh, and Berezovsky was one of them. And well, we'll carry on. I mean, so, and Berezovsky uh, had this assistant, as it were, um, Litvinenko, who sort of went rogue and was no yes. longer useful to Berezovsky. But I didn't read up on the Litvinenko case before we went on. I just remember it from the time. Wasn't there two Russian hitmen who, whose flights could be traced from Moscow? And were, were there not polonium traces on the British Airways flight from and to Moscow? There were no so polonium pretty... traces on the British Airways flights. They claimed to have polonium traces in tea kettles in a London hotel, I forget which one, where they had had tea with, presumably had had tea with Litvinenko. Nobody verified that this was true. Uh, you had to take the word of the British Special Services and Boris Berezovsky and his press team. Um, they, they're they always these stories, but uh, who wrote Litvinenko's final death le deathbed letter? Um, mm. Who who was managing? They saw each day you had this very carefully stage-managed series of revelations. Uh, nobody, the problem is journalists used to be journalists. Now they're stenographers. They take mm -hmm. down verbatim what they are told by the special services and by Whitehall, especially in the UK, where the propaganda press is very tightly knit. And, you know, it, it, I remember 30 years ago, the FT was an excellent source. Now it's pure propaganda. Hmm. But I mean, so did Litvinenko die of polonium or, or not? I mean, was that he fake too? He died of polonium poisoning. There's no question but about Berezovsky it. had done it. And then Berezovsky died as well, didn't he? Was he assassinated? Berezovsky, oddly enough, committed suicide, or so they tell us, um, after um, a series of uh, embarrassing defeats in a, in a, in a London court. Um, but uh, it was a very convenient time to get rid of Mr. Berezovsky, too. And um, again, there is no real forensic evidence that this was suicide. He was still very wealthy. He had a magnificent mansion uh, outside of London. And uh, he ended up badly. Mm. So would, was it... Um... I mean, would it would the British Secret Services kill one of their own? I mean, that sounds incredible. Uh, or was it? Couldn't that have been? I mean, my view is that Russia is quite capable of assassinations. It's just that they didn't do all of them. They, but they just because they didn't do all of them, it doesn't exclude that they did some of them. I mean, uh, to I me, the jury's open. Every state, every country. I mean, the Americans wipe out millions. They the American drone strikes. Throughout the Middle East, no one seems to be shocked when they designate someone a terrorist and blow them up uh, in the middle of Baghdad or uh, Lebanon. Uh, 
but that's not criminal. Uh, mm. I certainly, I mean, a Russian assassin took out a Chechen terrorist in, uh, in Germany and uh, was arrested for it and will probably be swapped back to the back to Russia in return for an American. Uh, mm. Countries do this. I'm not saying that Russia is pure and white. I am saying that the big stories you get in the press, including, um, certainly including Litvinenko, including the Skripals, um, and uh, including the first poisoning of Navalny are obvious fabrications. Well, we'll talk about Navalny in a second. Um, Skripal, of course, was more recent, and that was, I mean, uh, just talking from the top of my head, but I mean, I'm, I'm talking from the same perspective as the average news punter yeah. who half remembers these things, as we all do. And that, of course, had that was involved with the radio a poison. I mean, these things are also, they're, such hyper, they're so dramatic, aren't they? In one oh. case, it's polonium. In this case, it's it's a... Uh, it's a toxin, Novichok. a biological toxin. Novichok. Novichok. We, we, we all talked about Novichok a few years ago. So what happened there? Well, Novichok is an interesting agent because it is a deadly nerve poison which never actually kills anyone. Um, the Borgia Popes 500 years ago were able to remove their enemies with pretty much a 100% success rate. 500 years later, the fearsome FSB can't really seem to kill anybody with the famous Novichok. And the wonderful thing about Novichok is it's stamped made in Russia. If somebody is killed with cyanide, well, that could be anybody. But Novichok, you know it's going to be Russia. So it makes it very easy for the journalists, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. The script house, once again, were useless. They had left a long time ago. They were not really involved in, in anything particularly harmful to the Russian state. And the timing, you have to look at the timing of these incidents. Uh, the Scripples was right before Mr. Putin was going to go to the West to make a major speech. And um, it, it was the timing was perfect. The timing for Navalny was right before the, uh, the uh, Munich conference. Uh, mm -hmm. So if the Russian state is doing it, they're certainly timing it so it does the most damage to Russia. And this mm -hmm. is sort of curious. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So you think that some of these high-profile things that point out the Russians could, in fact, be the Western intelligence agencies who basically wanted to make sure that the Russian reputation can never be saved because in the eyes of the West, they're poisoners uh, through polonium and the world's most toxic material, Novichok. And so we can't negotiate with them and they're going to invade the world if we don't do anything against them. I mean, that's a very dangerous attitude towards a nuclear power, especially if they're being provoked like this with false narratives about them. I mean, you, they'd be incredibly insulted. I mean, Putin said, I want to join NATO in 2000. Yeah. They wanted to join the West and be friends with the West, but they're constantly being pushed away by these narratives about them. That, in my mind, is sufficient alibi for wanting to hit out at the West. You know, it's like a bully. Somebody's bullied and then they hit out and suddenly they get blamed again, you know, a second time for, for hitting Mr. out. Mr. Putin came to power, and I had been, in, I was in Russia doing, my entire career in finance was, was during Putin. Okay, I was there under Yeltsin for three years, and then Putin came to power. And for the first 10 years, he would give these speeches about our friends and partners in the West, that he expected Russia to be welcomed as a, not as a defeated power, not as a penitent, but as an equal 
who wanted to sit at the same table, uh, negotiate for its own interests, and be treated as an equal, and he believed he would be. And it took him a very long time to realize, unfortunately, that the West did not want to deal with anything but a compliant and submissive Russia. They loved Russia under Yeltsin. The country was falling apart. The old ladies were picking through the snow for bottles. The president was staggering off airplanes, dead drunk and making a fool of himself, and everybody laughed. Putin was another, it was a tiredly different kettle of fish. He was focused, he was strongly pro-Russian, he was not going to be manipulated, and he expected to be treated as an equal, and they don't want equals, they want submission. And by they, you mean the, the Western powers, the UK Western and US? Powers, in particular, the US, but there is, in some ways, there's more hope from the US than there is from Europe, because, and as I said about the Ukrainian war a year ago, this war would end when the Americans got tired of it. The Europeans cannot. There are too many political careers invested in the, the fight against Russia. And they no longer claim, they no longer even claim to be trying to defend Ukraine. What they're trying to defend, they're trying to do is defeat Putin. And as one American politician recently put it, well, this is the cheapest way to do it because no Americans are dying. Plenty of Ukrainians, of course, but they don't count. Uh, um, Eric, uh, just we've got a few minutes left. Um, I agree with all of that. And, and the poll from The Guardian, which I cited today, showed that most Europeans, normal people, want peace and a negotiated yeah. peace. But the elites sit there in their European council meetings, hobnobbing with each other and talking about ways of, to escalate this war because they've got too much vested interest and they don't care about what the public thinks. Anyway, um, obviously, Navalny, in your view, fits into this list of Western intelligence ops to destroy, to carry on destroying Russia's reputation because, of course, the death of Navalny coincided with the Tucker Carlson interview where Putin was able to say his yes. stuff and he got a lot of popularity and that was regarded as a diplomatic success for Russia. He said, we want peace. You know, I'm not a lunatic by his very talk. But if, And then this Navalny death came and it's had wall-to-wall -wall coverage in the UK media, you know, 10 yeah. articles a day about Navalny Perfect on the BBC. Perfect timing. And I yeah. knew Navalny, not very well, but I knew him. I heard him speak repeatedly in Russia. And the man was, and I'm sorry, in Russia, there is a tradition you don't speak ill of the dead, but I'm not Russian. So I'm going to have to say what I think. Uh, Navalny was a would-be Russian Mussolini. He was extremely racist. He was constantly Russia for the Russians, um, and which meant excluding the Caucasians, including the of all of the Arab republics of Russia. Russia is a federation and it is held together by a common ideology, but many different races, many different religions. And anyone who is going to come up in Russia and call for the superiority of one particular race, of one particular ethnicity, is going to lead to the sort of civil war you're now seeing in the Ukraine. Um, we just fi finally, we've got to uh, draw it to an end here. Well, Eric, thank you very much. Eric Kraus, a former financier, uh, expert on Russia, who thinks that uh, we've been told a tale about Navalny and many other anti-Russian narratives. Well, we're not here to be pro-Russian, but here to find out the truth so that we can have world peace and not let the deep state conquer us all and end us up in a conflict that will extinguish life on this planet. 
Thank you very much. This is Eleanor Taylor on TNT Radio.